Welcome back to Bird's Eye View. When it comes to the Orioles, this weekly podcast is your official source for a lack of insight and for baseless opinion. Today is March 23rd, 2022, and this is episode 333. My name is Jake English. And I am Matt Taylor. That's right. Scott is out on assignment this week, and so Matt has graciously agreed to join us. On this week's show, we're going to ease back into this regular podcasting thing. It's also that time of year when Roar from 34 takes its bird's eye view spring training residency. And we'll do all that right after we lubricate the show. That's right. It's time for the drink of the week. Um, This is usually the time where I ask Scott what better beer he's drinking than me. Um, I'm just going to admit tonight that my my beverage is a gin and tonic with grapefruit uh, juice in it. And it's been delicious. Uh, Matt, what is what is your uh, drink of this week? I am enjoying some Tennessee sipping whiskey, as they might say, some Jack Daniels single barrel. And I am quite enjoying it. That will do the trick. If you're interested to see what what beer we're drinking uh, throughout the week, as will be important as the season starts, uh, you can find us on Untapped. I'm at Jake E4025. And you can find Scott at magn 86 And with that, I think it's time that we find out what's going on in Orioles baseball at 280 characters at a time. That's right. It's time for this week on the Twitters. I'm going to go ahead and get started with a tweet that comes to us from BarstoolRDT at EDiddy22. Gotta have a nickname for this, he says, with a picture of the new wall dimensions at Camden Yards, and I love everything about this. I love the tweet. I love the idea. I love all the recommendations. I had said a little while ago um, that because the new dimensions of the wall are, are so extreme right there at the pole, that it's possible that we'll, we'll have a pesky pole situation and that we needed a name for the pole. I didn't even think about this new area of, of the ballpark that we have. I'm really excited about this. I mean, are do you have any thoughts or, or anything that you're you're rooting for, or are you keeping your mind open as the season starts? Well, I saw the conversation as it emerged there on Twitter. I, I love the idea, and I saw some conversation uh, about you know, referencing some of the history with uh, Earl Weaver's tomato patch. I like that. For me personally, uh, as a fan of alliteration and as a fan of finding ways to honor players that's short of getting a statue, I liked Adam's Alley. Um, thinking of Adam Jones. Uh, not that he was a left fielder, but we think of it as a power alley, uh, even though the fence is further back. Some way to honor Adam Jones with that. So that's what came to mind for me. But I do, I love the idea. And I think uh, you know anything that introduces some more local culture um, into the ballpark, into being an Orioles fan, I love it. I think it would be fun if we referred to it with a different moniker every time we reference it. I, I'm going to try to come up with as many, steal as many from this Twitter thread as I can and and try to use Try to use something until something feels right. I like that idea a lot. So let's go over to Cespedes Family Barbecue, a regular provider of uh, solid baseball content and Orioles references, where the tweet reads, Saw Glaber Homer against the Orioles with my own two eyes. I'm officially ready for the season. And as we round into regular season form, what better way than to see Glaber Torres homering against the Orioles I saw that tweet and went over to Baseball Reference just to make sure it wasn't my imagination. And oh, it is most definitely not. After uh, Yankee Stadium, it's Oriole Park at Camden Yards as, as the uh, most active stadium. I think he's got 16 homers against us 
Then it's maybe 10 against the Red Sox and drops off from there. Um, so very uh, on point, timely tweet provided to us there, reminding us of the misery that has been inflicted upon our beloved Orioles. I think with uh, Glaber Torres owning the Orioles, you can basically just schedule those tweets for any time during the year and just you know have them go, and it, it'd be perfectly fine. It's, uh, it's evergreen content. Uh, next, it, it wouldn't be this week on the Twitters on Bird's Eye View without a mention of Matt Kremitzer, so let's go into it. At Matt Kremitzer, please make sure you're following him. Hey there, he tweets, Trey Mancini and John Means. Trey, thank you for being such an inspiration as you beat cancer. John, thanks for being the only good Orioles starting pitcher in years. Because of the lockout, we can't wait to argue during the season that we should pay you less money. Yep, yep. Now that we're back uh, to the business of baseball, it means the business of baseball. It's a bummer. I get it, but it's a bummer. Well, speaking of providers of great, great content, Matt Fremens are a regular there. Uh, really got me through this offseason and this lockout, uh, reminding me that I still did love baseball and, and love the Orioles. So always appreciate uh, his contributions there on Twitter to Orioles Twitter. Uh, I'm going to go over now to another solid contributor of Orioles Haiku. Um, and, uh, you know, we've got a, a photo circulating from an interview that uh, Manny Machado's done where he's wearing a Let's Go Brandon shirt. Um, and so Orioles Haiku tells us in a quote tweet, Manny Machado still supporting the Orioles and Brandon Hyde. Well played, Orioles Haiku. Well played. You know, not to wander too deeply into Baltimoreans territory. And oh, I'm just going to stop for a tangent right here. I am so delighted that Baltimoreans is providing new content. They're back. If you're unaware that they're back or you're unaware that Baltimoreans is a thing, I beg you, turn this podcast off right now. Come back to us when you're done. Go consume the entire back catalog of Baltimoreans, but especially their episodes here in 2022. Uh, we love those guys. Sam and Alan are fantastic. And their bent uh, can sometimes be a little bit more... Uh, progressive political than, than ours. Um, however, not to dive too deeply into the Baltimoreans' territory, but one of the things that I find fascinating about the moment of history that we're in right now is that you kind of have to do some mental gymnastics about supporting creators, whether that be art, entertainers, which would include um, you know athletes, and, and your enjoyment of the thing that they produce versus your support or not for some of their personal beliefs and or uh, behaviors, right? Um, we see that with actors, with writers, you know, again, here with athletes. You know, it's hard when you find a player that you uh, really admire, really enjoy, really um, connect with their talents on the ball field, and then find out something about their personal lives that doesn't gel necessarily with your own personal worldview and how those two things interact. You know, um, we all, I think, go through something like that. And so this is, uh, this is one of those, you know, eye opening moments where it's, it's a little easier for Orioles fans now that Manny Machado is no longer an Oriole. Uh, but it certainly won't be the last time, uh, we deal with, uh, Luke Scott telling us to keep the change. Ah, uh, good, solid Luke Scott reference. I'm glad to be back on the podcast. <laughs> Speaking of evergreen content, right? Uh, I think that we have come close enough to touching the third rail, so it's time to put the Twitters down. Let's, uh, from here, go on to another old bird's eye view favorite and step into the medical wing. Time. 
check off time for your check I'm gonna check your ears, check your eyes, find out how much you've grown. Time for your check off She's gonna listen to your heartbeat, fix you up, ready to go. Time for your check off <laughs> It's okay if you giggle. This will only Ah, uh, yes, good old Doc McStuffins is back, and we step into the medical wing. <sighs> Matt, some of these are depressing. I'm just, I'm just going to warn you now. Uh, looking through uh, the Orioles injury report, I'm really disinterested in a lot of the things that are on there, but there are two that we've got to talk about. Uh, obviously, Adley Rutschman uh, having a, a strain in his tricep is just a gut punch, right? Really exciting uh, the way he's come on. There was there was real hope that he might even start the season with the big club. And uh, now, obviously, opening day is not going to happen because of the injury. Let me ask you this: Do you think we're going to get a real answer? You know, do you think we can we can believe what we're being told about his condition to know how big a deal it is, or do you think it's too early in the process for that? Uh, I think both can be true, um, but I don't think we'll get straight answers on much of anything. I'm I'm not going to fall back on the cliche of like, why can't we have nice things? Well, actually, that's exactly what I'm going to do. Why can't we have nice things? But one of the bright spots, a reason to follow this team, a reason to be excited, and we get through the lockout, baseball's back, bring the Adley, and immediately it's taken away from us. Just as you say, truly a gut punch. Yeah, um, you know, Michael Ice is saying that it's more in the matter of weeks than days. It's really hard not to feel like that's an ominous statement. Every time I hear something like that, you know, it's impossible not to compare Adley Rutschman in your mind to Matt Wieters. Like, that. that's just there. And every time I hear something like that get said, I just think about Matt Wieters and that arm uh, brace, right? Totally unfair. I know it. I'm reading between the lines with what uh, Michael Elias said. I'm just hoping that it, it's truly the type of deal where he recovers quickly um, and is ready to start, you know, whenever he comes back, uh, clean slate. The other really depressing uh, injury news actually came out today, and that has to do with Hessen Kerstad. And luckily, this is not uh, heart-related. Um, so uh, Kerstad's heart condition, which uh, sidelined him, you know, basically right after he was drafted, isn't the concern here. Uh, but during uh, practice, he did uh, suffer a high-grade strain of his left hamstring, and it's going to be out 9 to 12 weeks. Um, Michael Elias broke that news as he met with the media today for a, a presser. Um, boy, that is just depressing for, for what a great story that kid is to have another setback, and particularly one that's going to be you know, months in the making. That's a bummer. Yeah, I mean, Michael Elias broke the news to reporters. You broke the news to me. Um, and obviously it's a, a bad situation. But, uh, you know, I'd, I'd seen um, a, a tweet. I think it might have been Rock Tobacco when um, we first had some some early injury reports. And, and really, I think, made a good point that what he was dealing with with um, – myocarditis and his health issues is completely separate from injuries. And so let's not put this guy in the category of can't stay healthy or anything like that. Um, so I think it's important to separate the two. And I think it's also as part of that to have a sympathy for the guy, right? That, I mean, and I think especially any of these young guys that, um, 
you know, we feel the enthusiasm from from the outside watching them and what they could mean to the organization. But imagine the enthusiasm of, you know, seeing your path to the big leagues and seeing that get closer. And then, you know, in Kristad's case of everything he's been through where you, know, you don't have to go too far back where the question was, would this guy you know, even play again? And if he did, would he be healthy enough to be a major league player? And then I, I can't imagine what it must be like to then get to that point where you know, it's back within view, things are back on track, and now you have this, this major setback. So feel for him and feel for a lot of these young guys as they try and um, you know, make their way to the bigs and, and start establishing their careers. Yeah, totally. I mean, Adley Rutschman is one where the injury impacts you know, the, the big club. Right. The Kerstad injury is one that just really pulls at the heartstrings as a fan, you know, not so much the wins and losses uh, in Baltimore. Can we also just mention that that um, my my favorite Oriole who has yet to play a game and may never play a game is on this list of Shed Long. I mean, he's got the name Shed. I I'm a sucker, you know, for I can follow all different parts of baseball. I'm also just a sucker for a good name. We used to have a reliever called Randor Beard that I loved for you know, not much more than the fact that his name was Randor Beard. And now I look on that injury list, I see Shed Long, and I'm like, come on, Shed. I want to cheer for Shed. I am in your corner. I have conflicting feelings about Shed Long. Um, first, I agree. Great name, and it's one of those things that years from now, we'll be able to pull that out on the Sporkle list and be like, dude, remember when we had a guy named Shed Long, <laughs> right? That's great. However, there's another part of me that I'm I'm not particularly proud of. Um, and it stems from uh, something of a, a disagreement that I've had with my HOA. See, in my neighborhood, I'm not allowed to have sheds. And so I'm a little bitter that the Orioles didn't just get a shed. They got a long shed, right? I feel like they're just flaunting it at this point. Um, and so whenever I see his name, I, I get I get an uncomfortable feeling because of the, uh, the rather unfortunate shed uh, dispute that I'm in the middle of. You know, we've already used the, the term of touch of the third rail. I had no idea. I had no idea what I was stepping into, and I am sorry. Look, not to go too deep into this, but I have a, I have a plan. Uh, it might cost me my marriage, but I think I know how to resolve this situation. I'm going to go to a junkyard and just get a, a beater of a car, like a just falling apart piece of trash, and I'm going to put it up on blocks in my yard. And when the complaints start rolling in, particularly from the HOA, I'm going to say, well, I, I can't put it in my garage because that's where I'm storing yard equipment and you know wood uh, for burning and and uh, some some tools. If only I had a place that I could keep these things, like maybe a, a freestanding structure on my property uh, about which you could make rules about what was appropriate and and what the aesthetic could be that I could follow and and therefore resolve this issue for for the both of us. Um, but my, my wife does not think that's a good idea. And so um, Shed Long will continue to haunt me um, for as long as he is with the Orioles. I love a solid dose of passive aggressive suburbia. It's just the best. <laughs> um, I think we've we've covered a lot of good ground here in the medical wing. Uh, we've we've literally pulled at heartstrings. Uh, we have mentioned uh, Matt Weider's bionic arm and we have gotten into um, HOA disputes. I, I think we should leave it at that uh, before, before we really spiral out of control. That's a good call. So uh, let's take a quick break. When we come back, we'll go around the bases.
All right, let's do it. Let's go around the bases. Matt, thanks for doing it. I'm going to need some backup on these things because clearly um, I don't know anything, as, as you can tell from my discussion of sheds. Uh, let's start at first base and just cover a few things uh, from while Scott and I have been away. Um, you know, we've been on our own lockout. And so we've got to talk about possibly the most important thing that has happened with the Orioles. And that is this. On June 12th, I'm going to take my wife and my kids to go watch Sir Paul McCartney play music at Camden Yards. Can we just have a moment for how amazing that is? I don't believe that there is any person who has been the intended demographic more than I am the intended demographic of this concert. I think that your your place in the Orioles fan domain, the Orioles culture, is solid enough that I am sure, I am certain that I am not not only not the only one, but one of just many who, as soon as we heard this announcement, your name came to mind. And had it not been for the fact that I was guessing that you probably got enough text and tweets to fill several volumes that I didn't want to just add to that, but to me, the, the news was big because of you, because this was happening for you and to you. I, I think that's uh, the way most things in this world are. Um, I'm, I'm super excited about it. Uh, I went to go see Paul McCartney in 2005, and at the time he was 63. He was uh, promoting a new album, and he played for three hours. Uh, he was incredible, and the last of his three encores was Helter Skelter, which was you know, note for note off the White Album. And I thought to myself, well, I can't, I can't ever go back because he was so impressive that if if I ever went back and saw him and he was a frail old man, it would just it would break me into a thousand pieces. And so I've I've avoided every opportunity to, to go see him since. Um, but I think I was able to tell myself, you know what, he's going to be eighty a few days after I see him. I think that I can I can do the mental gymnastics to say he's going to be the rockinest 80-year-old I've ever seen and allow that. Originally, I wasn't planning on taking the kids, but both of them kind of rode me for, for a couple of days after the announcements you know, were made. And you know, Max, my high schooler, was like, well, Dad, you know, this is my only chance. <laughs> I was like, all right, you got me. You got me. Well, so you... You know how to play the angles with the shed. Max clearly knows how to play the angles with you. So this has been passed down. This is quite a, a positive trait here. You're assuming that I didn't learn it from them. Um, yeah. Yeah. So anyway, we're very excited about it. Paul McCartney is going to play at Camden Yards. Uh, I apologize to anybody who's not interested in this subject. You, you should just mute Bird's Eye View on August or on uh, June 12th. It's, it's going to be um, excessive. The, uh, the Paul McCartney tour, of course, is called Got Back, and uh, that's not the only thing that got back recently. Baseball is back. Baseball got back. It got out of its own way. The owners uh, relented uh, to end their lockout, and there were very few surprises, right? I feel like a lot of the items in the new CBA, you know, had been telegraphed, and it was really all over but the shouting over, you know, the, the dollars and cents. Um, I've, I've got a couple of, of things I'm interested in that have been announced more recently as far as changes that are not going to take place in 22, in this season, but in, in next season. But before I just blow past the return of baseball, 
I mean, is there anything about the new CBA that jumped out at you or that you're excited about or concerned about? I'm sorry, you're going to have to give me a moment. I'm still in awe at that transition of yours, you know, from one topic to the next. That was like local TV news at its best. What a what a transition. I have very few skills, but turning Beatles lyrics into um, actual conversation is, is like that's the only one. Well, you, you've mastered it, my friend. You have mastered it. So I, yeah, I'll, I'll be honest. Well, as all of this was going on, I think I deliberately tuned out the particulars. Um, and as it was first resolved, I think I you know, deliberately tuned out the particulars. Um, and, and now I'm at a point where I'm starting to look at it at more. Um, and you know, kind of surprised that they got anything resolved in, in terms of changes. Uh, you know, the thing that, that strikes me is that, uh, I feel like baseball tries too hard to be liked, right? Any sport is concerned about, uh, its audience and keeping fans engaged, um, but it feels like they do so much tinkering and um, such an effort that almost that sometimes there's not enough pride in, in the product. I mean, I think the substantive issues with the with the lockout and, and um, you know, on the labor side are really substantive, meaningful things that may be hard to relate to as a fan. But, you know, if you look at what some of the minor leaguers deal with and and come to that realization that, yeah, we see the big dollar figures for the guys that are career major leaguers, but there's a whole nother um, category, you know, that's, that's often unseen. And that kind of stuff really, really matters is in substantive. Um, and then you get a lot of changes that I think can, that are more debatable, more easy to discuss that, um, you know, are, are seem like efforts. Like, is there some way we can make this more interesting to, you know, a, a younger generation? Um, but from the same league that still like locks down on highlights and, you know, has, you know, viewing restrictions. And um, it's like, how badly do you actually want to want to fix this problem? But before I get into too many of those particulars, I'm going to pass it back to you so you can get us into some of those uh, 23 changes. Well, I want to actually I want to key in on something you just said, because I, I think you're you're spot on. Um, I try desperately not to read the comments, but sometimes it gets the best of me. And, you know, I saw somebody make a comment on some discussion and some thread about rule changes coming up where they said something, you know, kind of flip like, you know, we don't need uh, we don't need a pitch clock in baseball. We need, you know, tickets to be affordable enough to take kids so they can fall in love with the game. And um, and after chatting myself for being in the comment section, I then thought a little bit about that statement. I was like, you know, that actually is kind of right. You know, uh, for all the things that that I think ownership may have gotten wrong, you know, uh, during the lockout um, and, and with some of the things that you mentioned correctly about, you know, being accessible through social media and, and you know, that kind of thing. I, I look at efforts that the Orioles and I'm sure some other teams make where it's like, you know, kids cheer free is the best thing that this franchise can do um, in order to try to capture, you know, the youth. It would be even better if the team were winning, right? But just getting people in the door to be able to fall in love with a, with a, a great game is really what it's about. And the rest of it is window dressing, right? I, I think there's a lot of truth in, in what you just said. And so how do we make this game as accessible as possible, right? We talk all the time about the NBA doing such a great job of showcasing their players and the personality of their players and really allowing their players to sell this product, right? I don't feel like the MLB does anywhere near a good enough job of that. And uh, I think baseball is hyper-local, right? There are plenty of people who are their team's fans 
more than they are baseball fans. I'm, I'm probably, you know, in that category. Um, but I really wish that, that teams and, and the, the game itself would make it easier for, you know, people to really sink their teeth into what is a beautiful game. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I think that's a really good point. And, you know, I've, I've had a similar thought in terms of, you know, reflecting on my own experience and, and knowing that, you know, as a, as a product, especially for a younger person, that baseball can be hard to get into for, you know, reasons that, that have been covered at ad nauseum. But as I thought about it, it was my own experiences, right? Going to the ballpark with my family. And not that at the time it made me into the biggest fan, but it was a combination of, Going to games is, yeah, that's a family outing we can do sometimes. And playing on the local little league team and, you know, you're, one team's going to get to be the Orioles, right? And there's a, there's a connection there. And then as, as I got, got older and I went away to college, well, you know, I'm out of state. I'm, I'm in New Jersey where it's all Yankees fans. And, and what did I identify with, right? What was my thing? And it was Orioles baseball, right? Um, and as painful as that was relative to what was happening, you know, yeah, it's a good way to get beat up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it, it was something I really identified with the area. And, you know, one of the things I love, um, going to the ballpark is that I can think of many times throughout my life, um, where I was sitting, you know, at the ballpark and who I was with and what I was doing. And sometimes that's, mundane like it was just an enjoyable outing i had with a friend or family member other times it's like i can remember the first time i took my girlfriend now wife to a game and where we were sitting and and what happened and um you know on down the line with with other memories along the way so i think that aspect of as much as we try and tinker well not us obviously but as much as they try and tinker with the game and find the thing that's going to bring people in i think physically bringing people in letting them have that experience and even beyond baseball right now, you know, I'm living in Nashville. Um, and when I think about my sports teams, like we spent a lot of time in Baltimore during the summer. So I still get to go to games and take my kids and that sort of thing. But even as I, I try and stay connected to, um, teams, whether it's college or NFL or anything like that, it's hard from a distance. And part of that difficulty is that it really just becomes about wins and losses. I'm watching at home and it's, they need to win for me to enjoy this versus when it's, as you're saying, hyper local, when I can go there and I might still be frustrated by a loss, but I can still have a good experience from it. Right. I can remember, Oh yeah, I went to that game. I had a good time with Jake. You know, we had a nice time doing this or that. Um, it's still an experience. So I can say, I don't want them to lose, but even if they do, I'm taking this positive experience away. And so from a distance now, it's harder to do that with a lot of my teams um, because it really becomes about wins and losses. And I think that that experience at the ballpark matters. And I think bringing more people into that, letting them create memories, letting them enjoy it, um, both for what's happening on the field, but then just the atmosphere of the ballpark is a big piece and probably one that doesn't get enough attention. Although we have seen, you know, as you mentioned, kids cheer free and, and some local efforts. And I would certainly you know, love to see more of that. Yeah, I'll co-sign all of that, but I certainly wouldn't mind a few more wins in the win column. <laughs> uh, I did I did tease out a couple of, of changes that I was actually interested in. Uh, a couple of things are going to happen next year. Uh, first is that they're going to balance out the schedule a little bit so that you'll play far fewer games against uh, those teams in your division. For the Orioles, I, you know, I think that's good news just because it means you know less of the the brutal AL East. But I also think it's it's interesting uh, because we're going to see a lot more of the rest of the league, right? Now that we've got a universal DH, um, you know, we already have an issue where we've got 15 teams in each league, so interleague uh, play is necessary just to keep the schedule every day going. 
Um, but it'll be it'll be cool to not only see different and more teams coming to Baltimore, but also have the opportunity um, for fans that choose to do so to, to travel to you know new and interesting locales and, and watch the team. Uh, obviously, the team needs to be worth going to see. But uh, you know, it, it used to be few and far between that you have a place like Wrigley on the schedule, right? Um, and so you know, with this more balanced schedule, one. Uh, teams at maybe a disadvantage like the Orioles from a, a competitive standpoint in a monster uh, division might have a little easier time getting out of that division. Um, and two, you know, le- less monotony from a opponent standpoint. Yeah. So the balanced schedule really is my favorite of, of the changes that I saw. I think a, a lot of what you mentioned there um, is, is a big part of that chance to see more teams, uh, variety of teams. And I think it, it goes back to the, the point I was making earlier about kind of tinkering too much to try and generate fan interest. And I think that's one that backfired uh, on baseball where getting those rivalries and getting more of those rivalries, I think, was was kind of central to that idea of having an unbalanced schedule. And I think it gets old after a while, um, certainly for fans of other teams who get tired of seeing Yankees, Red Sox all the time. Uh, but I think even for the fans themselves, what, what makes so many rivalries special in so many other sports are the limited chances you have, like one or two chances a year uh, to beat your rival. And if not, you've got to live with that. Now, baseball is not that simple, and I wouldn't recommend like one series in each city. But I think having fewer opportunities um, really gives that rivalry more meaning overall. So I'm glad to see it go back to a balanced schedule for a lot of reasons, um, and I think it's it's fixing something that was made in an effort to to potentially generate some fan interest and may have backfired in that regard. Now, as much as I love to hear my own voice, I've got real strong opinions on this next one, so I'm going to kick it off to you first to make sure that I I, I don't uh, don't go too far here. What do you think about banning the shift? I find myself in a surprising place on this, um, and. I, I have I have stated publicly, so I won't go back on it now beforehand. That I'm I'm not a fan of banning the shift. Um, while I think it does generate you know more offense and um, and you get back to a more traditional game, I, it bothers me from the sense of this. You know, as we go through this analytics era and smarter baseball, it is something that that's been figured out. And I think the remedy to it is to figure out okay they. They've looked at the numbers. They've figured out a way to you know, take away a player like Chris Davis's ability to get those hits on the on the right side. Now it's up to the player to figure out how to beat the shift, whether that's learning how to lay down a bunt the opposite way, hit the opposite field, whatever the case may be. I think the answer to a smart strategy is to develop a smart strategy in return. And so I'm not a fan of just saying, oh, that's working too well. You can't do that anymore. Yeah, I wow. I could not have said that better. Banning the shift to me is like banning the curveball, right? If you don't like the fact that not enough offense is happening, talk to your offensive players, right? Because in many ways, you know, the, the approach is what's getting beaten as much as, as the effort. Um, yeah, I'm really not looking forward to uh, a future in which, you know, the shift is banned. The one thing I'll be interested to see is, does banning the shift really have an impact on the offensive, uh, you know, story of baseball? There are some articles, you know, I read something in, in Fangraphs the other day where the thought is, well, maybe it won't. 
be so impactful. Maybe maybe we're making too much of this. I'll be really interested to see where that goes. Um, you know, pitch clocks are involved in the new changes. I'm I'm against pitch clocks, uh, and I, I don't think that pitch clocks are are as important to the um, pace of play issues that the baseball have. I, I think it's the you know third commercial in the break that that really could do more good than the pitch clocks. Um, but I think it's something that that we're just going to have to deal with because they're they're coming whether we like them or not. Yeah, I, I agree with that and. It makes me think of watching a play clock in football and watching the thing go down and then seeing it go to zero and then a snap still happen. And then it, well, was that, you know, was that a violation? It, to me, it, it just, it makes it a more tense game. And I'm not sure how, how meaningful it is, both in terms of how strictly it's going to be penalized, uh, but then also, you know, how much it really does make a difference. Uh, and last one, this, this is interesting to me. They're going to enlarge the bases from 15 inches to 18 inches. Um, and this being viewed as a, as a player safety issue so that the, the runner, uh, will have, you know, more real estate to get to, um, uh, as they're trying to, to get to or get back to a base. I'm interested to see, you know, how, if at all, that, that changes, uh, gameplay. I don't necessarily have a strong opinion about it, but when I saw that, I was like, huh, okay, well, let, let's see. Again, that'll be a, a 2023 change. I'm really happy about it because I never actually knew the size of the bases. And so now if I'm ever in bar trivia or trivial pursuit, I can answer the question that, oh, the bases now I can say are 18 inches. Well, we live to serve here at Bird's Eye View. Uh, the last thing from the while we were gone, man, we've spent a lot of time at first base. I just want to quickly touch on the Carlos Correa saga. Um I'm just going to go out there and say that anybody that thought that there was a real chance of Carlos Correa signing with the Orioles deserves the disappointment that they felt when it didn't happen. Yeah, that one really it took on took on steam, um, and it was it was it was fun to follow it honestly on on Twitter and and see kind of you know, you you knew that the gut was this is not happening this is not true but there is that little glimmer where people wanted to believe it you know think that maybe it was possible. And honestly, um, while that was fun to follow, one of the things that, you know, that, that's really come front of mind for me with the Orioles, especially as you look at where they're building and what they're doing in the minor leagues and their system of drafting, is that their problem is not going to be, you know, position players and offense. It's going to be pitchers. So the free agent signings that will really need to happen will be pitchers. Um, it does make for something fun to, to talk about. Uh, but uh, like you said, if you were truly disappointed by that, then perhaps we haven't been paying quite enough attention. <laughs> Are you new here? Uh, all right. I think that'll do it for first base and the things that we missed while we we're gone. Let's uh, let's run along to second base. I want to talk about the starting rotation, and I think it's too early to get into what the, the roster is going to look like and all that stuff, so I don't want to go too far down the pro, uh, prognostication. But obviously, you know, John Means and Jordan Lyles, they're going to have spots in the rotation. But after that, it's just a big bulk of who knows, right? Um, is there enough talent on this team, do you think, to... Um, to, to cobble together a rotation, or are we going to be in a position where having a bunch of guys that aren't good enough to pitch six innings every five days is going to uh, tax the bullpen and and be a, a depth issue? Uh, you, you 
you could have stopped. Is there enough talent? And no matter how you finish that sentence, uh, I, I would have had the same answer. And six innings seems generous. Uh, that would be an improvement for us. I mean, when I look at Jordan Lyles becoming an Oriole, it's like it goes back to the term you you learn as a younger fan, right? You learn to say, oh, he's an innings eater, right? That's his value. He's an innings eater. Like all the numbers are terrible, but boy, he will he will throw a lot of innings for us. Um, yeah, I, I certainly don't look at it from a competitive standpoint, but I think it'll be interesting to see um, some of the strategic decisions. There's a, a piece that John Mioli wrote in his newsletter, which I'm enjoying now that he has that. Um, and he talked about Lopez and Wells and the decision whether to try and stretch them out and give them a chance um, as, as starters or you know, just stick with them in the bullpen, which is interesting. It's an interesting strategic consideration. Um, I certainly, as much as you know, our, our modern day Calvary with you know, Grayson Rodriguez and D.L. Hall, you know, we can't wait for that. I think we do need to wait for that. And again, if you look at it, as much as they've limited uh, Grayson Rodriguez in terms of innings, uh, D.L. Hall being injured, you know, I don't I don't expect to see them anytime soon. Um, so I, I think that it's it's more looking to hope for the future and, and can these guys develop. Um, but certainly in terms of uh, you know, competitiveness and any amount of excitement, I'm just hoping that as we get deeper in the rotation, we can limit damage so that there's a reason to watch beyond a couple innings. Um, and then we'll just continue to celebrate John Means Day again this season and, and look for that one day when we can truly feel like we've got a really good shot. I'm. Uh, you mentioned the cavalry, and so of course, you know, I, I, I had an emotional response. But uh, I find myself continually disappointed in the lack of development in uh, Dean Kramer and, and Keegan Aiken. You know, the the uh, prior cavalry wave. Um, and at this point, I think when you look at those guys, you're hoping for uh, somebody that can be more of a, say, Brian Mattis than a Hayden Penn, right? Are these guys going to be useful Major League Baseball players or are they not? Um, I think it's less becoming, you know, hey, can these guys be a number three to number five starter, uh, but rather like, you know, can they stick on a Major League roster? Uh, this is really, I, I would argue, you know, their last chance to be relevant in a starter uh, discussion or, you know, Lord, I hope uh, that this is the last chance. Um, and then from the rest, you know, it's like Lowther and, uh, Wells, not uh, Tyler Wells, Alexander Wells, um, you know, j- just all the rest is, is you know, Bruce Zimmerman, uh, Michael Bauman. Those are just, you know, names of, of maybes, right? Um, not to say that, you know, any of those guys can't develop into a, you know, perhaps number five starter in the league, uh, but it's certainly not a not a slam dunk. I would say the rotation is a, is a real point of concern just because, you know, if we're going to go through the, the rebuild process, I would I would like to see more Jordan Lyles signings, you know, Jordan Lyles type signings so that we can develop pitchers in a much more controlled fashion and not have a constant shuffle because we just need innings. Yeah, and I think it's you know, you mentioned earlier how you didn't want to, but you you still see things with you know, kind of from that Matt Weeder's context as as that a certain framework when we talk about Adley and um when I look at the pitching, I, I think of, you know, the, the you know, those young arms. You mentioned Brian Mattis, right? Um, and as we saw him and Gosman and, and Bundy and um, all those guys coming up, uh, there was that initial excitement, right? The first time you, you see them pitch. And I can think back, I remember when Gosman came up pitching in Toronto and it was like, 
for an inning. It was like this guy. Oh, my gosh, this guy. It's been worth the wait. And then by third or fourth inning, it's like, okay, well, maybe. Right. (laughs) And we saw a lot of those guys that were going to be the next wave of a rotation that, you know, Mattis ending up in, you know, a very, very limited role that he couldn't even do now by <laughs> by baseball rules. And we see Zach Britton become an amazing reliever, but was a guy that was a part of that wave of arms that were going to provide the rotation. And it, it feels in some ways like that. And when I look at a Rodriguez, a Hall, those guys, it, there's that same excitement of, oh, I've heard so much. I want to see these guys at the major league level. But I agree with you that I, I don't want to be doing the shuffle, right? And I don't want them rushed. Uh, and I certainly, you know, there's there's nothing but caution, it seems, with the the, you know, the Orioles' approach right now. Um, but as excited as I am to see them, I'm willing to wait till late this season or next season even um, and you know, let them get to a place where they're truly ready to be here and not be shuffled. And I, I think that's mo- even more important with pitchers, right? The mental aspect of the game is important at any position. Um, but learning to pitch, especially guys that have such great stuff that they probably for much of their lives haven't had to learn how to pitch, right? That they can throw it past guys, um, haven't been challenged that much by batters, that to actually learn to pitch is a real process and very much a, a mental part of the game. Um, and to know that for as good as your, you know, your fastball might be, you get to the major league level and all those guys can hit a fastball if, you, if they see it enough. Um, so, I think making sure that those guys are, are truly right. They're still going to take their bumps, obviously, but that we're putting them in a position that we can get them here to to stay and work on those kinks that they're at a point that they're minor kinks that can keep them in the rotation rather than, okay, let's go back down to the minor leagues, which I didn't, don't think is good for anybody. All right, well, let's, uh, let's leave second base right where it is. Let's roll into third. And my question to you is this. Um, you know, I, I said, Hey, I would much rather see some, some, you know, reasonable deals given to underwhelming free agents than to burn through, uh, the kids. Are there any, you know, free agent pitchers that you think is a reasonable chance that we could get somebody here to Baltimore? Uh, you know, when I look at the, the list of, uh, starting pitchers that are still available, you know, not only is it, is it, underwhelming but even that underwhelming list there's a lot there that i say well that person's never coming to baltimore even with a a new wall in left field (laughs) even with the new wall i mean and the funny thing is is that some of this list is you know former orioles we've got uh the likes of wade leblanc on this list you know clearly a starter or cole stewart again clearly a starter uh, right. Uh, there is, uh, Jake Arrieta is on this list. Um, but yeah, so, you know, when you look through, you know, who's at Matt Harvey, right? When you look at who's actually available, you know, uh, the top flight of these guys are either, you know, well, well past their prime and, and looking for, you know, one last, you know, year or two contract. Um, and those guys are, are not, not coming here. Um, Looking at it, you know, it's kind of like, well, I guess maybe that's why we're stuck with the kids. But am I am I overlooking anybody? Is is there, you know, like a dead ringer on this list that you look at and you say that that is who the Orioles should get to come in and suck up innings? There's not, and it it really reads like you're pointing out former Orioles, and I even there I look at guys that we once talked about. I mean, I see Irvin Santana's name on that list, and I think back to like. 
you know, he was he was a potential trade target when we were looking to unload, you know, Miguel Tejada, and at a point and where he would have been a really intriguing option. I'm like, wow, he's still pitching. Like, why don't we just bring things full circle, right? Um, but I, I mean, I think just it may seem contradictory to say this after saying that they need to give these young guys times in the minor, um, but. We, we know this team is not going to compete you know, at a serious level. Um, give guys chances, right? And, and you know, even if that means leapfrogging some of the um, ones that fans are starving to see that, that seem like a better bet to, to you know, not only be um, regular major leaguers, but even potential um, aces or two or, you know, two or three guy in the rotation, um, even if I had to leapfrog them and let some guys that, it, that the question is there, give, give them a chance, let them work it out. Um, and knowing that we're not going to compete, now's the time to do that. And I'd much rather see who can be developed, um, especially as we think toward the back end of that rotation and could be a, a puzzle piece to come in there at a, a four or five spot in the future when, you know, presumably we are competing and losing games will mean more at that point and we don't want to be trying guys out as much. So, um, you know, th- there's not a lot that, that excites me on that list unless you're just looking for, for a sideshow and, and having been through the, the Matt Harvey experience, right? Like just to, just as there's that little glimmer that turns to, well, maybe if I look at this at the right angle, Carlos Correa would consider Baltimore. It's the same thing with Matt Harvey. Maybe, oh, oh, he pitched a good inning. Like, is that magic still? That? No, it's not. Right. But um, yeah, so th- those are, I think mostly, mostly sideshows. And I, I think that there, there's no real reason to, to dip into that pool. I'm going to try to remind myself of this conversation later in the summer when I'm super frustrated that they didn't sign another arm, uh, that, that I really wasn't wild about any of the options. All right, let's go ahead and jack cuss our way into home. Uh, here at Home Plate, I want to talk a little bit about the Orioles broadcasters, both radio and television, going to be at home again. Um I guess on the surface, uh, because of COVID, um, what, what do you think is going on with this? Do you think this is an expense issue? Do you think this is something where they're, where they're trying to protect the national treasure that is Jim Palmer? Like what is behind this policy? Yeah. And you know, I don't, I don't have any, any good insight into it, but I think that, um, you know, I've, I've heard people talk about, um, COVID in the sense of, you know, kind of creating opportunities and opportunities to to do things that might be um, problematic in, in other contexts, right? And you see all sorts of businesses uh, uh, do these sort of things, you know, kind of the idea of taking advantage of a good crisis, right? And so to me, it feels a little bit like that, right? That we can get away with this now, so let's let's extend it. And, and the COVID thing might not feel that valid at this point for, in this decision, but we can still tie it to that and, and get away with it. Um, what I'm curious about, I, I think Kevin Brown's a very talented guy. I enjoy listening to him. And um, this will be a good test of his talents um, because I think that, you know, I, I don't want to jump onto the, you know, beat up Scott Garceau bandwagon. That's been that's been done. But that was one of the areas where it really showed up a lot for him, right? Struggling. And you, you understand how that can be difficult. Um, but... I'm interested to see what kind of Kevin Brown can do in that space and if he can make it feel uh, more more believable and, and kind of more in tune with what's happening. Um, I, I, you know, I personally don't like it if, if for no other reason than I do enjoy 
listening to games. Um, and even if I'm watching on TV, I enjoy the announcers themselves. But uh, a lot of the games when I'm consuming them is, is listening um, you know, to the radio broadcast. And so uh, anything that damages that in any kind of way, um, you know, obviously I, I don't like. So hopefully uh, that that's something they can overcome. But it, it feels a bit to me like, hey, this is a good opportunity to take advantage of a crisis. And you know, we're not spending any money in uh, on the major league club. And you know, we're gonna we're gonna cut some corners here and save a few bucks to keep these guys, you know, um, in in Baltimore and not worry about the travel. Yeah, I I think you're right that I hope along with you that the the mainstay of the Masson and radio talent will be able to uh, mitigate the impacts from a play-by-play standpoint. Uh, but I think you're also spot on about the fact that like part of listening to baseball on the radio, which is an experience I love. I mean, it's, it's one of those romantic things about baseball that just, you know, gets me every time is that the good announcers make you feel like you're there, right? They, they paint the picture so clearly for you that they, they, they can literally transport you. Um, and I do wonder about the ability, uh, to do that. And, you know, again, I, I know that I'm not nine years old listening to, you know, John Miller or, or Joe Angel or Fred Manfra, um, you know, paint those pictures for me. Um, but I think that there is the possibility for loss there. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, when you figure you're filling, you know, a substantial broadcast that often the, the color that comes with it, kind of there's a spontaneity from being at the ballpark and, and seeing the ballpark and what people are doing. And, and um, that spontaneity, I think, uh, you know, is another casualty of a, of a decision like this. So um, hopefully this, uh, this, you know, won't, won't last, but, I was worried, uh, it's separate but related. I was worried during the lockout in terms of how long it would last because I heard a former baseball executive talking and trying to give behind the scenes and basically saying, hey, COVID showed these owners that they don't have to play a full season for it to be legitimate, that they can still have a postseason and still have people engaged. So his perspective was that, you know, they're going to be in no rush to resolve this, these things. And, um, and so, you know, I look at this and kind of have that same mindset of I, I hope this isn't something to test and say, oh, well, we can make this work and still get people people listening. I, I hope um, perhaps naively that it truly is just uh, a, a extra ounce of caution and that it, it won't be any kind of solution beyond the season. And, and who knows, maybe midway through the season, um, we, we even get back to the traditional methods. Yeah. And, and you know, to be fair. I think that the Orioles radio network folks and the Masson folks are just like the rest of us. And the fact that they much prefer working in an environment where it is not relevant as to whether or not they're wearing pants. Good point. And I think that's a good place to, uh, to leave, uh, around the bases. Let's take a quick break. And when we come back, I'd like to serve up some pie. Should have figured that there was a pie reference coming talking about mark trumbo and here i was 
looking at comments that Mark Trumbo has now made and feeling like, you know, this guy's taking a lot of heat for those pies and, and maybe he's more reasonable than we've suggested. So thanks for just shooting that down before I even have a chance to get started, Jake. But what I want to talk about now, perhaps, uh, you know, listeners have heard this, uh, themselves already, but it was really intrigued as, uh, Mark Trumbo has, has commented publicly, um, about hitting coaches, you know, and hitting coaches who aren't former players. So, Trumbo's been um, in, in the Orioles camp and he's talking about you know, these co-hitting coaches the Orioles have now hired and getting at the idea that you know, these aren't former players and this, um, as I say, influx of non-traditional hitting coaches. And if I could just read his quote here, he says, I think it makes a lot of sense. I think the issue with an ex-player at times can be somewhat of an ego-driven thing, somewhat closed-minded. And I've always been open to just about anything that might make a difference and make it easier to understand a concept. However hokey it may appear on the surface, if it can help someone, it's not valid. And I think if you want to coach in today's world, you have to be far, far more open-minded than you might have been or what a lot of people, kind of the culture that the game has kind of had for a long time. It's outdated. Jake, when you hear that, what, what's your reaction to it? You know, I was kind of surprised to hear that come from Trumbo because I, I kind of thought of Trumbo as kind of a an older school kind of guy. And maybe that was, you know, the... Maybe that's unfair coming from the, you know, play first base, play right field, hit ball really hard, you know, uh, white guy bringing your uh, pail to the ballpark kind of mold that he, he fit into with what we've seen here in Baltimore. Um, but I would not have expected that to, to come from Trumbo. It could be, though, that he's he's thought a lot about what it's going to take to get himself into the league um, you know, in this next phase of his career in coaching and, you know, have, has done a lot of, um, not soul searching, but, you know, done a lot of, of, of reflection and analysis about what he brings, what the game needs and where those two things intersect. Well, you, you raise a really good point and, and you know, I hadn't thought about it. So you just said it, but you know, he's a guest instructor now for the Orioles. And if he wants to get in the game, especially as we look at the Orioles and how they're now doing business, right? You do have an option to to not think that's valid and to be publicly against it, but you also have an option as part of that to not be in Orioles camp and potentially not in, in many others. So perhaps some of it is driven just by a realistic look of, hey, I have to adapt or else there's not going to be an opportunity. But I think the general concept, it's one that baseball, I think, perhaps more than any other sport struggles with. Um, and, and very much a, a culture of baseball and guys who have played the game. And then we get into the trope about, you know, oh, you never played, right? You never suited up. But we look at all kinds of sports where the guys that haven't played are still among the best as, you know, as coaches, as managers, as, as, as that sort of thing. So to me, it was a, a positive development. Um, I, a few years ago, I read the, the book. I think it's called The the Only Rule is It Has to Work. And it, it was basically getting at this notion where a couple of analytics guys invited to essentially take over and, and do decision making for you know, a, a low minor level, minor league level team. And it's kind of tracking this journey where they come in thinking like, hey, we really know what works. But then that coming up against a bunch of guys who are very much of that baseball mentality of there, this is the way you do things and what is all this newfangled stuff. And um, you kind of see the relationship progress there where they realize like, okay, we got to kind of win these guys over and then players slowly becoming um, you know more open to it. 
I think baseball is becoming more open to it. I think certainly when we look at what the Orioles are doing, absolutely that's, that's the culture that's there now. Um, but I think there's something encouraging regardless of the motivation. And when you've got a guy of, of Trumbo stature, that's acknowledging, right? That there is value in going beyond that limited perspective of, and the ego in particular, and say that, hey, just having played the game is, is not enough. Um, and that there is value in an outside perspective, whether that comes from someone that has been in the batter's box or someone that hasn't, but just really understands the finer points of hitting. One thing uh, that I also find uh, encouraging about this is that, you know, for a long time, the Orioles were a laughing stock in every capacity, right? On field, in the warehouse, you know, what, whatever category you wanted to do, we were just the pits. Um, the Orioles organization is one in which, you know, if a, if a former player looking to get into coaching is looking for an environment in which they can learn about the analytics side of the game, the, the, the data-driven uh, approach to the game, the Orioles are on the forefront, finally, of that. And, uh, you know, is, is a place where, you know, you can get meaningful experience that you can either, you know, apply here or take elsewhere, right? This is, this is probably a good development piece for Trumbo's, you know, uh, prospective cre- uh, coaching career. Um, and it's kind of exciting that the Orioles, uh, you know, is an environment where that can happen instead of just, you know, another punchline. Yeah. And I think right, right now, I mean, you, you, I've seen it before, saw it some last season, and I've already seen it some early this season among Orioles fans, like on, on Twitter and, and some of the conversation. And it, it's kind of how much trust do you put in what the Orioles are doing and the frustration with not fielding a, a more competitive major league product than we saw. I think it was Jock Peterson who, who tweeted and, and didn't attack the Orioles directly, but had him on a graph basically of you know, payrolls and come on, what are you guys doing? But I mean, it's, it's a choice right now and, and it really is a choice on what you believe about the, the team and you can make an argument either way. I choose to still believe in, in what they're doing. And it's because while, you know, like it or not at the major league level, the things that they're talking about improving, they are improving, right? The international, the farm system, all these sorts of things. And as you say, they are, they've gone from, you know, a, a, you know, ignorance or disdain for, um, you know, kind of analytics piece of the game and the modernization of the game to now being, you know, I think very much at the at the forefront of that. And those indications to me are positive and, and the reason I choose to still believe like, okay, yeah, there is a system in place. And and for me, and I think for me, probably fans of my generation, um, if you've been through the dark ages, if you've been through 14 years of losing where you see there was no plan, there was no direction, it was making it up as you went along and sign the free agents, spend the money at the major league level and hope that that old veteran that needs another shot somehow finds it in Baltimore compared to now where there's clearly a plan, a vision in place. We'll see where that goes. It's certainly shown at the at the minor league level. Um, hopefully that can translate to the major league level. But it is nice and it is refreshing to see, hey, here's an area of something that we can feel good about what the Orioles are doing and feel like there is a plan, there is a system, and there is something about their organization that's worth respecting. Yeah, I, I wasn't really wasn't really uh, planning on talking about this much tonight, but uh, you know what you just said really got me thinking about my current position on where I stand on on the level of competitiveness for this team. I would I would definitely have put myself in the apologist camp last year 
for how little the the team competed. You know, realizing that what was really important was happening at the minor league level, knowing that you know major pieces were on the horizon. You know, the Rodriguez, the the um, Adley Rutschman, you know, Dale Hall, even that next wave, you know, Gunnar Henderson, the whole the whole nine yards. And not not really caring about the difference between a 55 win team and a 70 win team, uh, particularly because just as you indicated, I watched 14 years of you know 70 win teams at best when they were desperately trying to tell me that I should be excited about Jay Payton or Derek Lee uh, and expecting me to buy into that as hope. Um, <clears throat> I do I do I, I agree with my with my previous uh, uh, statement, but. At the same time, I also, you know, lived through, you know, ending the season, you know, 60-some games out of first place and wouldn't mind uh, seeing a, a placeholder team that was going to win more games, right? And at some point, even I am going to run out of patience for the losing. Um, that, that puts the team in a rough spot, right? I understand, I understand all the things uh, that are required to to tear down an organization that has so much rot in it as the Orioles did in 2018 and to turn it into what we hope can be a perennial winner. Um, but I, I also am, am starting to feel less and less like the, the folks screaming uh, that the here and now needs to be somewhat more palatable aren't crazy. Yeah, and I mean, I think especially you know, we talked earlier about changes, you know, that have come with the CBA and including those expanded playoffs. And I think as we talk about expanded playoffs, you really don't have to be that good to have a shot at the playoffs, right? And so whereas that uh, that high 70-win team you know, would, would not have been as palatable before, now that puts you at least in the conversation for a good portion of the season and thinking maybe and what if. I mean, the basic premise I understand um, that, you know, if you're not going to be good, if you're going to be bad, like why spend the money anyway? So I, I understand that rationally, um, but I think that it, it does get harder to you know to um, to really buy in and, and into that argument and to not lose patience. You know, I had a, a good friend that I, I grew up with, who um, lives on the West Coast now, but is a is a huge Orioles fan, and you know I remember him texting me during the season last year, and and angry because he's saying, you know, you're, you're feeding me this crap. And it's the awareness that, you know, I'm coming back, right? You know that you're not going to lose me as a fan. And so that's a hard realization, right? When you realize like, you know, they can do this and I'm still going to be there on, on the other end. I think it's fair um, to, to be losing patience and to feel like, give me something, right? Like we're going to see some of these stars and we've got some things to be excited about, but let, let's try and compete at some level and, and and make it at least a little more worthwhile where all of a sudden like, yes, we want more than 71 teams, but it's something, right? It's, it's a starting point. And I think the word you used was placeholder, right? Give it, it might be soon where we need that placeholder um, as a, as almost nothing other than a good faith effort to say, yeah, we see you and the good times are coming, but here's something in the meantime to at least keep you a little more entertained. And I think that's much like uh, much like Mark Trumbo, as as we started this conversation with. I think what we should do now is we should take a quick break, come back, and talk about in the past week or so what was good, what was bad, and what was ugly. 
right, it is that time again for the good, the bad, and the ugly. Okay, there aren't that many games happening, so I'm not going to talk about on-field performances, but there's plenty that's been good, been bad, and been ugly in Orioles baseball over the last week or so. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and get started, and I'm going to say the good for this week is the chalkboard by my front door in the house, because starting about, oh, two months before opening day, I start a countdown. Every day when I walk down the steps, it's the first thing I see, you know, bleary-eyed and grumpy, is a reminder that baseball is on the way. And as of today, that countdown to opening day is 16 days away, which means that we are Trey Mancini days from opening day. And tomorrow, it means when I grumpily go down the steps, we'll be Jerry Hairston days away from opening day. And these things are all very good. I'm going to tell you that that is one of my favorite things on, on Twitter is, is when we see pictures of players with the number and the countdown to, you know, it's, it is Jerry Hairston days until the start of it. And I, I love that you have a chalkboard and, and I'm jealous. Why don't I have a chalkboard? Now, I know that, you know, you have a, a background um, in the performing arts and, and appreciate um, the quality of performing arts, including improv and improvisation. So I'm going to improvise now, Jake. I, I was going to tell you my good was that baseball's back, right? And get excited about this, this post-lockout world in which we live, but I'm going to change it. I'm going to improvise based on our conversation today and based on our conversation in the last segment. I'm going to make my, my, uh, my good very simple. Two words. Mark Trumbo. Okay. I, w- I will take that as an answer. All right. All right. Mark Trumbo is good. I'll buy that. I'll co-sign that. Let's go ahead to bad. Um, my bad is going to be arbitration talk and not the specifics of the fact that we are mired in a situation in which the team is going to have to speak in court about why they shouldn't pay uh, the face of their franchise more money or the most talented pitcher that they've got on the roster. I, I think what is more irritating to me is just the fact that people talk about this as if it's an affront to those players, right? The arbitration po- process is what it is. We know all about it. The Orioles are not necessarily being cheap because they're going to arbitration. This happens in, with all 30 clubs, and it's the process that the the Players Association and Major League Baseball have agreed to as ratified by this last uh, CBA uh, nonsense that we just got through. I really find arbitration, the tone around arbitration talk to be really disheartening uh, this time of year, or I guess this this cycle of the year. It's it's a bad deal. I don't want to I don't want to have more bad feelings about baseball. Yeah, there's arbitration cases happening. Maybe they'll be able to avoid it. Maybe they won't. But once the numbers are, are done and the deals are signed, baseball will happen. Get over it. There are some enduring narratives that no matter who is in charge in the regime with the Orioles that are, that are going to be there in the arbitration talk, I think, plays right into those. Uh, my bad uh, is, I guess, now a complete sentence. So originally I was going to say baseball is back as a good, um, and the, the rest of that sentence uh, is the bad, but the Orioles are not. So baseball is back, but the Orioles are not. And that's one of those things that I was pleasantly surprised. You know, I, I mentioned earlier that I expected the lockout to go longer. Um, I felt we'd have a season, but that uh, be a, a shorter season and potentially very short. 
Um, so I am excited to have baseball back and I'm excited for opening day. I'm excited to be listening on the radio again. Uh, you know, all those familiar things. The fact that the Orioles are not there yet, um, and, uh, you know, may have a very long season is, is my bad because I think that that's going to set in, in pretty quickly. And it goes back to the, the idea we were talking about of not feeling a competitive outfit that, uh, you know, this, this is going to be, you know, probably another season that's, that's rough to watch, um, where after opening day, we're not going to see that energy in the ballpark, um, and where it's going to be tougher to, to really, engage at a, at a deep level with this team. So my excitement about baseball being back and my excitement about the Orioles is tempered by the reality that we're not there yet. Fair enough. Uh, my ugly is this. I thought we were over this. I thought we weren't going to have to talk about it anymore. I thought that I was going to get away with no, no longer having to whine about ghost runners in 2022, but it, they're back, baby. They're back. Ghost Runners by unpopular demand are going to be a feature of Major League Baseball. This is awful. It just reeks of Little League Baseball. And look, I get it. We don't want games to go on forever. It's a player safety issue or something. I I don't know how much we really think we're solving as far as a problem is concerned. First, I'd like to know how many games go so deep that the ghost runner rule really matters. And lastly, marathon, ridiculous, long baseball games are entertaining as hell. And if you have any doubt of that, I will remind you that Chris Davis pitched once. I will remind you that the Orioles in 2012 played 18 beautiful innings against Seattle in a game that ended at four something in the morning, and some idiots watched it. And I was one of them. Long, ridiculous baseball games are one of the quirky things that makes this game beautiful. And the return of Ghost Runners is an absolute affront to that. It is ugly. The Orioles are not back, but the Ghost Runners are. That is indeed ugly. Uh, My ugly is simply public perception of the Orioles, right? We've we've touched on this uh, in our conversation in in various ways. Uh, But fairly or not, and often it's not, the Orioles are a convenient whipping boy, whether that's Jock Peterson having us on that graphic and tweeting about it, whether it's Buster Olney that, you know, Orioles fans now have a regular rival in, in his attacks on the Orioles feeling you know, it really plays into that kind of underdog Baltimore mentality uh, that exists. But while we know what the Orioles are doing, we know the system in place, we can shift, point to the farm system and these positives and think about hope for the future that's not the focus of the story. That's not the narrative. It is kind of the same old Orioles. And as part of that, we continue, not necessarily we as in Orioles fans, but baseball fans more generally, act as if the time period from 2012 to 2016 did not happen, that this is the same ghastly franchise that has been this way since the late 90s. Um, and so that public perception of the Orioles is my ugly I hope we can change that, uh, knowing that, you know, obviously our, our, our model for a guy like Elias is the Astros who 
were that ugly in terms of their public perception and now perceived very differently, well, as cheaters and all that, but positive in terms of winning at least. But the public perception of the Orioles, um, I'm looking forward to hopefully that narrative changing. It really is the ugly. Um, and in some ways, I want to just stop playing into that even as fans and responding to a Buster Olney or anything else that, you know, not not worth it, right? Just wait and see. That indeed is ugly, sir. Well, that'll do it for the good and the bad and the ugly. Look, before we move on to blowing the save, I just want to take a a moment here. And Matt, thank you so much for joining us here on the show. Thank you for for filling in admirably in the large shoes that do belong to Scott Magnus. Uh, I just want to stop and, and remind folks, you know, where is it that we can find you all over the interwebs for Great Orioles uh, discussion and content. The the best place to find me is on Twitter at roarfrom34. I was able to wheeze myself weasel myself into the Mass and Orioles bracket there in March Madness by self-nominating to to let folks know I still exist. I still do uh, operate roarfrom34.com though the content has been sparse in recent years. I keep telling myself I'm going to get back to more of that. Um, but really enjoy the opportunity to be on the show. I've enjoyed the uh, content on Twitter with Orioles fans. And um, as I talk about baseball being back and the Orioles being back, that is one of the things that, that I enjoy most is connecting with fans and being part of the, the culture of the team. So at Roar from 34, Roar from 34.com, let's, uh, let's chat a little bit and commiserate together. If you're not following Matt on Twitter, you're doing this wrong. Uh, he's frankly one of my favorite Orioles uh, content creators uh, was very big inspiration in getting this this podcast started and uh, having had the opportunity to, to get to know him, uh, one of my favorite people too. So make sure you go out and find him on the interwebs. And with that, we're going to take a quick break and we're going to come back and blow the save. Some longtime listeners of the show may remember that Ukraine holds a special place in my heart. I studied Russian language in high school and college, and when it came time to study abroad, Russia was considered unsafe as the Chechens were bombing Moscow and St. Petersburg. Instead, we went somewhere much safer. I spent a month in Kharkiv and a week sightseeing in Kiev. To say that the trip changed me is an understatement. Part of my heart will always be in that place. A core memory from that trip is that seemingly everywhere we went in Kharkiv, uh, a school, uh, a factory, a government building, our hosts would arrange a welcome program that included troops of dancing children. It It was literally dancing children wherever we went. As I've watched the horrors of Putin's war of aggression unfold, I've I've been unable to stop thinking about those dancing children. By now they're grown, some with children of their own, And I wonder to myself how many of them have had to flee their homes, how many have been forced to defend their land, and how many of them have died. I am painfully aware that as Americans we are seemingly comfortable with violence and genocide and inhumanity in certain parts of the world. I am uncomfortable with the fact that we seem to care about this white European nation enough to show its darkest days on our news 24-7. Every place, every people 
has its dancing children. But having spent some time with them, I really do feel like these are my dancing children fighting for their lives. And so I'd like to ask you, um, if you've ever enjoyed this podcast over the past 10 years, I'm begging you to donate anything you can, any dollar counts, to the victims of this horrific war. Legitimate, vetted charities are easy to find, and, and if you have a hard time, please look at the show notes for this episode, episode 333. Bird's Eye View will be happy to make recommendations. Ukrainians have immediate needs and will need help for generations to come. And if you have any ability to help with that, it would mean a lot to me. It would mean a lot to so many if you would step up to be part of that solution. Thanks for listening. Slava Ukraini i prividite tansuishih titiai.